want to invite you to dig in real deeply with us over the next few months as we study Mark together. Um, there's lots of reasons we preach through books of the Bible. One of them is it forces me and whoever else is preaching to talk about things that we might normally not want to talk about. Does that make sense? If I get to choose the text each week that I'm preaching, then I get to choose to avoid certain texts that I would not want to talk about and preach through. And so going through books of the Bible helps us discipline ourselves. Another reason is it's a great chance as a community uh, to kind of get together on a, a certain book of the scriptures, to kind of get together and say, you know what, over these next few weeks, over these next few months, we're going to dig in together. Um, and we're going to have a, a common goal and a common book and a common gospel. And so I uh, want to invite you to dig in and to um, experience in all kinds of different ways what we might be able to provide for you as we go through Mark. So we'll be preaching through Mark. Um, if you're someone who likes to read and likes to research, I've got a list uh, in the hallway of recommended reading. There are three books on there, two commentaries, and then one book over Mark that you could read and read along with me as we go through it. We have an event coming up on Tuesday, October 7th, where we will, uh, it's called Experiencing Mark, and what we're going to do is come and listen to Mark being read as a story all at once uh, and all together out loud. This is how Mark was originally put together. It was meant to be performed. Uh, to a group of people. And so most people back then are illiterate. So you send a messenger and they perform the gospel of Mark and you receive it all and all at one time instead of breaking it off into pieces. And so um, different opportunities like that that we'll provide and, and be able to give for us to dig into Mark together and experiencing it together. Um, we're in the gospel of Mark. Mark is uh, a story about Jesus. Okay. It's a, a biography about Jesus. It was written by a guy named Mark. No surprise. He's the spiritual son of Peter who's Jesus' best friend during his lifetime, okay? And so Peter um, travels along with Mark and kind of grows Mark up in his faith and tells Mark stories about the different things Jesus did and said. And Mark records that for us in this gospel that's written here. Um, we're going through the gospel of Mark for a few different reasons. There are a few different things that make Mark stand out as a gospel and make Mark worthy for you and I to be studied. But as I was listening off and thinking through the reasons why we picked Mark to walk through as a church community, the number one reason that came to my mind was because I'm not a morning person. And I know that doesn't maybe make sense automatically, but hopefully it will by the end of today. I, I want to go through the Gospel of Mark um, together as a community because I'm not a morning person. I've always, since I was a little kid, had trouble with the morning. In fact, if I'm honest, I have trouble going to sleep and waking up. Just the transition in and out, even from a little kid. Um, from, from seven, eight years old, my earliest memories... Going to sleep was a struggle, and then getting up was even more of a struggle. I think that's where I became kind of like a thinker, is laying on, on my bed for hours and hours at end, not able to fall asleep, and you just kind of have your thoughts to kind of go down different rat holes with. Um, and, and waking up was always, even as a kid, a struggle. And so now as an adult, I have four alarm clocks set to wake me up each morning. And this is not a joke. This is not a, like one of those preacher stories that you just make up. They're all tiered 15 minutes apart from each other, all in different places of my apartment. That would cause me to get up and go turn them off and that kind of thing. This is the only way I get up in the morning, okay, and get places on time. Um, when I was a kid, what would happen without an alarm clock is my parents were responsible for waking me up. And so they'd come and they'd wake me up, and I would pretend to be awake, and then I'd go back to sleep. And that was like my snooze button as a kid, right? So we do that four or five times until my mom figured out a trick that always made me get up and make me get up promptly. I still to this day think it's a violation of the Geneva Convention. There's something not right in this technique. I don't know if you've used it, but it was she would get a spray bottle and fill it up with cold water and spray it on my face like some kind of dog, right? And it's just the worst way to wake up. It's just the worst possible way to wake up. But that would get me up 
Give me swinging at people, okay? Um, ready for the day. Uh, as an adult, right, I've got alarm clocks in my apartment that help me get up. Um, but uh, when I go places, right, it's always, do I pack four alarm clocks? Or what do I do? That kind of thing. Usually I rely on my roommate to wake me up. And just say, hey, whenever you get up, will you make sure I'm alive and make sure that I get up eventually? And so a couple weeks ago, I went on a retreat and was rooming with a stranger, a guy, Jean Daniel from Canada. Really cool guy. Canadians have a really funny sense of humor. They're very dry, very witty. And uh, so I just met Jean Vandel, uh, Jean Daniel, and was we were talking. We were in our little room, tiny little room with two single beds. I was like, "Hey, just FYI, if you're comfortable with this, how would you feel about waking me up in the morning? <laughs> if you're comfortable with it, you can shake me. If you don't mind touching me while I'm sleeping, if you can throw stuff at me, you can yell at me." I'm probably not going to get up, though, until about noon, unless you take responsibility to, to, to wake me up. I've always had, had this trouble waking up. In a lot of ways, um, Mark is like a parent or a friend who's trying to get you to wake up for something important. In a lot of ways, when I read the Gospel of Mark, it reminds me of my mother spraying cold water on my face, trying to get me up and out of bed and moving around because something important is going on. And I need to be present and need to be in the moment. Or a friend who's, who's room with me trying to wake me up and get me ready. Um, I think a lot of times life is like this. The Christian life is like this. It's trying to wake up to the reality of who God is and what's really going on around us. And it's so easy to be drowsy. And it's so easy to get tired. And it's so easy just to, to kind of focus in on ourselves and focus in on our own problems. And to really forget and to really not be fully aware and fully awake to the reality of who God is and what he's done and what he's calling of you and I. Um, Mark is, I think, a, a splash of cold water in our face. Mark is a very fast gospel. It's very action-oriented. Um, Mark's the shortest gospel of all four that we have. It's the first one written, most people, including myself, believe. And it is, I mean, out of the gate, he just jumps and he goes and he goes and he goes and he goes. You'll see that one of the most common words of Mark is immediately. Immediately this happened, then immediately this happened, then immediately this happened, then immediately this happened. Mark has no time to spare, right? He wants to wake us up to all that Jesus is and all that he's done. And so we'll see that this morning here in the very first verse. Mark comes out, guns blazing, okay? So Mark 1, let's start um, the book together. Verse 1, Mark chapter 1, verse 1, reads like this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. John was the first hipster, okay? Um, and he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to even stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now in verse 1, Mark 1, 1, you have the thesis statement or the title of the book. He says, this is, this story is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And this first sentence, I think, contains a whole lot of powerful language and a whole lot of powerful images and a, a powerful declaration. But often we miss it, I think, because we um, don't realize the importance of certain words that have come into our vocabulary as Christians. So in Mark 1.1, just in this one sentence, there are a lot of political and military terms used here. Um, the word gospel, the word Christ, the Greek word for Messiah, 
the word son of God, all of these are military and political terms um, that would have, in Mark's context, context, been recognized as being these very powerful, subversive claims about who Jesus is. So we'll start, and we'll point a couple out with, uh, to you. The first one here is gospel, this word gospel. Um, it means good news, okay, in Greek, the good news of Jesus Christ. Um, but it's not an everyday type of good news. Like if you'd found a dollar, um, that wouldn't be gospel, that wouldn't be good news. Um, perhaps a better translation, a, a scholar says a technical translation of gospel, of good news, would be good news of victory from the battlefield. Good news of victory from the battlefield. Gospel is what you proclaim, it's what you heralded, it's, what, it's the message you sent out after you won a war, after you accomplished a victory. It's the rider from the battlefield going back to the capital city saying, the king's still alive. Our general's been victorious. What Mark's saying here is, this is the story about how Jesus has been victorious. How he's accomplished this victory. How he has successfully come out of this battlefield. He says he's the Christ, the Messiah. This is the title for um, the Jewish king who Israel had been promised to come and to lead them and to accomplish this victory on God's behalf. This title, Son of God, okay, again, has been very Christianized to us. This is a political term, though. This was a very common title for Roman emperors. In the first and second centuries, there's this thing called the imperial cult, where emperors, the Roman emperors, the Caesars, would be worshipped, would be seen as somehow divine. Christians would get in trouble because they weren't willing to see the Caesars as somehow divine, as a true king um, of God. They saw Christ alone as the true king of God. Son of God, Julius Caesar, um, he used to call himself the divine Julius, the divine Julius. His son, Octavian, was then called the son of the divine, the son of the divine. And then from then on out, all the emperors were, had this title, Theu Huios, son of God. You have Augustus, you have Tiberius, you have Nero, you have Vespian. All of these Roman emperors would be called a son of God. A common coin at that time um, that you would use for money would have a picture of the emperor and then the title, son of God. When Mark comes out, guns blazing, in verse 1 and says, This is the beginning of the good news of victory from the battlefield of Jesus, the king, the son of God. It's almost like a declaration of war against every other power, every other leader, every other authority that there is in the world. He's saying Jesus is the promised king of the Israelites, the Messiah, and not only that, but he's the true king of the world over and above and against any other emperor um, that might be out there. This is about Jesus' victory from the battlefield. Mark is trying to, in verse 1 and through this whole book, wake us up. This is a loud trumpet call. That something important and life-transforming has happened in the personal work of Jesus. Um, we are calling this series, uh, when we walk through Mark, Invasion of the Lamb. The reason for that is because we'll be reading and preaching through Mark in a way that you might call apocalyptic. Um, so with an eye to this kind of battlefield imagery, this kind of battlefield uh, connotation. What you'll find in Mark is that it very much is this kind of conflict of kingdoms when Jesus arrives. It very much is this invasion on God's part to take over and to take back control over his creation. Um, it's as if the Lamb of God is coming to invade a creation controlled by Satan and death and sin. And so from very early on, we'll see just next week, Jesus encounters Satan. And they go mano y mano in the wilderness. And he comes out victorious. And after that victory, Jesus goes out and encounters Satan's kind of outpost of rule, where the demons have possessed people and things, and he has victory over them. 
And Jesus conflicts with the Jewish authorities, both the informal ones, the Pharisees, the formal ones, the temple, the Sadducees. Jesus conflicts with the Roman authorities and ends up being crucified by them. But through all of this, Mark's saying, this is the true king. This is the true victory of God. This is truly how the battle went down and God accomplished all of his promises to creation. However, it will take us all of the Gospel of Mark to learn all the ins and outs of all of these parts. Jesus is a king, but as we'll find out in Mark, he's a very different type of king than what we've ever been used to. Than certainly they were used to in the first century, and certainly we're used to. He's a very different type of leader than what we're used to from people with power and with might and authority. And he fights a battle, and he accomplishes a victory, but it's a very different victory than the type of victories that we normally think about and normally hope for and normally expect. We'll see, it was not what the people of his day were expecting from a victory. And we're called to obey and follow this king, but it's often a very paradoxical, odd, challenging kind of obedience that we're called to. We're called to give up values that seem common sense to us and follow Jesus, even if it leads us to suffering. So it will take all of the Gospel of Mark for us to truly understand what it means to say Jesus is the Son of God. Flip with me, if you will, to Mark 15. So to the end of the Gospel of Mark real quickly. And we'll see that Mark ties this title together at the beginning and the end of his book to lead us on this path towards understanding what it means that Jesus is the Son of God. Mark 15, we'll pick up in verse 33. This is the crucifixion story in Mark. Since it'll be like four years since we're we're here in the series, I figured we'd go ahead and look at it today. Um, Won't ruin anything for you. Um, One of the themes throughout Mark's gospel that we'll see is that no one understands who Jesus is. His identity is commonly mistaken. In fact, really the only people who understand who Jesus is are the demons. As far as sane, rational human beings go, no one quite gets it. A few times they get the title right, but even then they've misunderstood what the title means. They recognize he's a king, but they still haven't gotten on board that he's a different type of king, that he's bringing a different type of victory. The first human being, the first sane human being to understand truly that Jesus is the Son of God and all of that means is actually found here at the end of Mark's Gospel. After Jesus' crucifixion, let's read together Mark chapter 15, verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani? Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who uh, stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. The first human being to understand that Jesus is a God is a centurion, a Roman centurion. He is a thug, a Roman thug, who would have killed human beings like you and I kill cockroaches, which is an everyday kind of occurrence, who would have pledged allegiance to the, the emperor as the true son of God, who stands there, watches a young Jewish man die on a cross, and maybe puts his hand in a pocket with a coin that says son of God on it with a picture of the emperor, but comes to the conclusion, this man is the Son of God. This is the type of king he is, the type of king who is killed 
This is the way his victory is accomplished, through a cross. What it means to follow him is to recognize that this is the true king and this is the life that he's called us to of sacrifice and service and suffering. No one gets it until the very end. You've got this Roman centurion who understands that this is the son of God. So it will take us, like Mark's readers and the disciples, all the way through the book of Mark to really understand the ins and outs of what it means that Jesus accomplishes victory from the battlefield. Um, that he is the son of God. So um, this is the message of Mark's gospel. This is the theme, the title of his book. And this message starts out with a messenger, okay? So we get John the Baptist. Mark tries to wake us up real fast with this first verse, this loud, bold, confrontational first verse. And then we get John, who appears, who his whole ministry was about waking people up, was trying to stir people's attention and get them roused up to movement and action. We read in verse 2 of Mark chapter 1, as is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John the Baptist, um, no denomination affiliation, okay? That's just what he did. He baptized people. He shows up and he is portrayed as the fulfillment of these promises of old that God had given his people. That before he came and decisively acted in the world to bring his rule and to bring his salvation, he would send someone ahead of him who would prepare them, who would try to wake them up and say, hey, just so you know, something big is about to happen in the world. And John the Baptist, or as I like to call him, Johnny B., okay, he's this, this messenger. He shows up. Now, Mark doesn't introduce Johnny B. It seems like he expects his audience to be familiar with him already. Um, in case you don't know, John the Baptist is Jesus' older cousin. Uh, by a few months. We don't know how much interaction they had growing up. We know from Luke's account that they at least met as fetuses, okay, in the womb. Fetus John meets fetus Jesus. Fetus John jumps up and down. He's excited about it, right? Um, We don't know, apart from that, how much interaction they had growing up. We do know that John, as an adult, is a very famous religious leader. Even outside of the Gospels, Roman historians will mention John. Uh, and the kind of ruckus he stirred up. He's this loud, controversial, and and somewhat popular Jewish prophet, Jewish leader, who goes out into the wilderness and has this ministry of baptizing people in the River Jordan and trying to get them to recognize that something big is about to happen. And Jesus, as we'll see, kind of picks up where John left off. But this is who Johnny B. is. He'll eventually get in a lot of trouble. Spoiler alert, he dies. He's beheaded. It's the reverse of the prayer of Jabez, right? Expand my territory. John had some territory cut off. Okay, he lost a little bit. Um, And he got beheaded because he was such an intense, controversial figure. Because he was willing and able and kind of wanted to pick a fight with the kings of the time and call out their sin and call out their evil. Johnny B. here is in the wilderness. He's portrayed, you have this quote here from Isaiah, as the fulfillment of God's promise to send this messenger before he showed up. Um, He says it's written in the prophet Isaiah. There are actually three quotes here um, from different books, three different books in the Old Testament, all smushed together uh, in verse 2 and verse 3. This is a common Jewish custom to take a few verses and put them together and then only cite the most important one. And so Isaiah is the most important verse that's quoted here, so he's cited. So if you would in your Bibles, flip with me to Isaiah chapter 40, where this quotation comes from. Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah 40 begins a section of the book of Isaiah that we call 2nd Isaiah. And 2nd Isaiah is a a letter 
of hope written to Israelites who had been defeated, who were in exile. It was a, a tender letter written to, to tell them that one day God would show up and would save them and would save the world. And when John preaches, he pulls from Isaiah 40, this promise of God's coming salvation to describe what he's doing and what will happen shortly. We'll pick it up in Isaiah 40, verse 1. I think on page 599 in your black ESVs. Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to them. To Jerusalem, cry to her. Her warfare is ended. Her iniquity is pardoned. That she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. Verse 3. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. This is the quote that Mark uses. Every valley, verse 4, shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill will be made low. If this sounds familiar to you, it's because this was part of Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. He said he has a dream when one day all the valleys are lifted, they're exalted, and all the hills and mountains are made low. Uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. There's this promise here that one day God's going to show up and act decisively. He's going to fix all that's gone wrong with his creation. Everything that's too high, he's going to bring it down, and things that are low, he's going to lift up, and the whole world will see his glory. The whole world will see how good he is and, and how good his nature and character are. And he says, a voice will come in the wilderness to prepare you for this day, to prepare you for this time. And in Mark, that voice is John the Baptist in the wilderness baptizing people, preaching about the one who is to come. Now, the other two places in the Old Testament where this quote in Mark 1 comes from is in Malachi and in Exodus. In Exodus 23, 20, I'll read it for you. It says, Behold, I'll send a messenger before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place I have prepared. In Malachi 3, 1, it says, Behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. Then all three of these verses kind of come together in Mark 1 to form this quotation. So we flip back to Mark chapter 1. John the Baptist is the fulfillment of these promises from God to send a messenger before his decisive victory in the world. He's the fulfillment of these promises. He's the one who's the voice in the wilderness. Now Isaiah, his context is one of comfort and encouragement. He says it's going to be a good thing when God shows up. He's going to save you. He's going to rescue and redeem you. Um, Exodus, the context of it, is neither good or bad. In the context of Exodus, that quote he says, if you obey his voice, it will be good for you. If you disobey, it'll be bad for you. And then in Malachi, the context is one of judgment. He says, I'm going to send a messenger before you to, to let you know the day of the Lord's approaching. But the day of the Lord's going to be a bad thing. Um, when God shows up, he's going to judge all the evil that's in his world. And if you're part of that evil, that's going to be bad news for you. You can't assume that when God shows up, it's going to be good news for you if you're on the wrong side of history here. And so there's an approach, there's a reaction that has to be made to God's coming. This is what John the Baptist is here for. We read about John. He's in the wilderness. He's proclaiming a baptism of repentance and forgiveness of sins. He's causing a stir. He's getting popular. All the country of Judea and all Jerusalem are going out to him, are being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. If you remember, Jordan and the wilderness are very important places for Israel and her story. She was brought out of Egypt as slaves, made free by the Lord, and then wandered in the wilderness. 
and then eventually came to the Jordan River. And she went into the Jordan River and came out of the Jordan River and was now in her inheritance, in her promised land. John is taking Israel back to the Jordan and saying, get back in the Jordan and come back out of the Jordan for a fresh start, for a new start, to receive your true inheritance, to receive God's true promises for you. He's an interesting guy here. He's clothed with camel's hair in verse 6. He wears a leather belt around his waist. He's eating locusts and wild honey. This is a clear reference to the prophet Elijah. So in 2 Kings 1.8, we're told Elijah wore a garment of hair and had a leather belt around his waist. John the Baptist here is pictured as the new Elijah, okay, out in the wilderness proclaiming who the true king is. Um, Elijah, if you're not familiar um, with him, is a very interesting character from the Old Testament. He's one of the prophets. He's filled with God's spirit. He works a powerful prophetic ministry. Um, He often confronts false gods and false kings and kings who are doing things the wrong way. Interestingly about Elijah is he never dies. Um, He's one of the many one of the few people in the Old Testament who never actually physically dies is just taken up to be with God. And there's this prophecy that the Jewish people um, were given and believed that one day Elijah would come back. Actually, it's in the book of Malachi. If you have time, you can read it. It's the very last verse of Malachi, Malachi 4, 5. He says, I'll send Elijah back to you and he'll prepare the way for my coming. Which is why when we read through the Gospels, we'll find that John the Baptist is often thought of as Elijah and Jesus is sometimes confused as Elijah as well. People will say, Jesus will ask his disciples, who are people saying I am? And they'll say, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah. Like, why Why are people guessing that's Elijah? Well, because there's this expectation, right? That Elijah, this prophet of power, would show up once again um, to make way for God's decisive action in the world. Um, John, though, is this Elijah figure. He's the one who comes to prepare the way for God. Um, he is the one full of God's spirit sent to come wake God's people up. And so there's two things John's doing here. One, he's getting people to repent, okay? He's preaching a baptism of repentance. Come into this water, get out of it as a symbol, as an action of your repentance. Repentance is a mind change. It's a complete turnaround. We might call it like a radical life change. It's an adopting of the paradoxical values of God's kingdom. So how we might normally think about wealth and power um, and, and relationships the kingdom it usually works the exact opposite. Things are turned upside down. And to repent means to admit I'm wrong and to turn around and start living a new lifestyle, to have this fresh start. And so they're confessing their sins. Um, they're getting this fresh start. And then two, John is telling people to be prepared, to expect that there's this urgent message of one who's coming, who's going to do something powerfully. He says, one's coming who's mightier than I. When's coming? The day's about to be here when something even bigger than this happens. He's saying, I'm baptizing you with water and we're repenting, confessing our sins and trying to get ready. But when he comes, he'll baptize you with God's very presence. You'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. Another promise that God makes to his people in the Old Testament, that when he comes and transforms the world, he'll change his people from the inside out. He'll give them his very own spirit and power and presence. And John says, this is the one who's coming This is what he'll be doing for you. John is out in the wilderness as this loud kind of voice of protest against all that is wrong in the world, trying to wake people up, spraying cold water on people, saying, prepare yourselves. Something important is coming, and you need to be ready for it, and you need to be prepared for it, and you need to respond appropriately to it. Even though for you and I, Jesus has come, John obviously has a purpose 
preparatory mission, right? He's preparing the way for Jesus to come. We live after Jesus has come and has accomplished these things. Um, even though we are on a different side of the timeline than John is, I think the message to us is still the same. It's still one of waking up. It's still one of realizing who Jesus is, of what he's done and accomplished in the world, and then what that might involve for you and I uh, as we live our lives. I would ask this question this morning. A simple one, perhaps. Um, are you and I awake? Are we awake to the realities of who Jesus is, of what he's accomplished in the world? Do we see the world and do we see history and do we see our lives centered around this decisive victory that he's accomplished? Is that the center of our lives? Is that the center of our world? Are our lives characterized by repentance? By admitting, admitting that, that I'm wrong, I have a wrong view, wrong way of living, and, and an accepting of Jesus' view and his way of living, God's life in the kingdom? Are our lives characterized by life change? Martin Luther, um, when he posted his 95 theses to um, start the Reformation, one of his his lines was that when the Lord called his disciples to repent, it was not a one-time activity. It was a daily call. So repentance is not this thing we do once as we come down to the altar and like accept Christ into our hearts where we say we're sorry for our sins. Repentance is something we do every day as we wake up and go, in what ways am I thinking wrong and acting wrong? In what ways do I need to admit I'm wrong and turn around my life and follow Christ? This is something that should be characteristic of us all the time, on a day-by-day basis. You and I have received the promise that John is talking about, this promise of being baptized by the Holy Spirit. Are our lives characterized as those who, who would be filled with such power, with God's presence? Are we, are we living the type of lives that can only be explained by the power of God working in us? Have we been filled, baptized, set on the path with Christ? Are we awake? Are we waking others up? Perhaps there's a, a call for all of us to be little John the Baptistus, where we go and, and we prepare the way for the Lord to enter into the lives of people around us, where we go and we wake people up to who he is and what he's done. Are we awake? Or are we dreaming? Or are we distracted? Or are we drowsy? Mark wants to wake us up. John the Baptist wants to wake us up. One last observation this morning. Um, in verse 1 of Mark chapter 1, he says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is, again, the title for the entire book, the kind of theme verse. Notice that Mark calls it the beginning. Arche. There's no, there's no article here in the Greek. It's just beginning. The beginning of the gospel, the good news of victory from the battlefield of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. He's referring to the whole book. It's interesting to think about. Mark says this whole story, starting with John the Baptist, leading to Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection, all of this is still just the beginning of the good news. It's still just the start of God's story, of his victory in the world. Mark, at the very beginning here, is inviting us into the story and seeing how it's continued on into our day, how it's continued on into our lives. We'll find out that Mark, at his ending, doesn't really have an ending. Mark leaves his book kind of open-ended. Everything about Mark is meant to invite us into what's going on, to ask ourselves, in what ways is this good news still going on in the world around us? In what ways is the victory still being accomplished and worked out? 
in the world around us, in the people around us, in our lives. We're invited to recognize um, who Jesus continues to be, who we're continued to call, who we're continued um, to be called to be, the type of people that we're called to be, what it means to be a disciple. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. My prayer this morning and as we walk through the book of Mark is that we would be people who are awake, that we would be people who um, are fully aware and present at each moment of who Jesus is, what he's accomplished. Again, it'll take us the whole book of Mark, I think, to get there, to really understand the ins and outs of what it means to call Jesus the Son of God, to say that he's accomplished a victory, to say that we're his disciples and we're following him and all the things that entails. My prayer is that by the end of it, we would be people who, who would be woken, who would be startled to action, who would be able to respond faithfully and obediently. I think as always the best place to start waking up is at the table where we come every week to participate and to remember and to celebrate what Jesus has done on our behalf. And so um, I'll pray and in a moment we'll be invited up to worship together. Father, we love you. We give you thanks for... Um, all of your blessings in our life. We pray that uh, you would continue to shape us and form us into your people, uh, the people who call you the Son of God, the people who recognize the victory that you've accomplished in the world and in our lives, the victory that's continuing on around us that we're called to be a part of. I pray, Father, that we would be people similar to those who responded to John the Baptist, people of repentance people who have uh, urgency and expectation for your son, people filled with the Spirit. I pray, Father, that, that you would even call us into our own, our own ministries where, where we're called to, to share your love and share your news with the people around us, where we're called to not only be awake, but to help others be awake as well to your love and to your work through your son. Father, I pray as we study this, this gospel together that you